Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hello, Ashley. It's good to be with you. Good to be with you, Zach. How are you doing? Um, It's good. Um, The world's still falling apart, Um, but otherwise, I mean, like... Just dealing with the. I feel like this has been the first week in a while without like a. I mean, besides like the major crisis that has been going on for months, but like no acute new big stories that have kept me up all night. <laughs> yeah, no, there's just the pandemic, which is still simmering and raging back. Yeah. Um, but we're post election, post McCarrick report. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't mean we're not going to keep talking about <laughs> both of those things. That's right. Uh, who are we talking to this week, Ashley? We are talking to Father Sam Sawyer. He's our colleague here at America. He's a senior editor and our uh, unofficial chief technology officer. <laughs> uh, he's the one to call when your laptop is broken. But he also wrote a really great piece for America Magazine last week titled The McCarrick Report Confirms It, Clericalism Powered the Sex Abuse Crisis. Yeah, clericalism is this word that we talk about a lot, and we figured that it would be good to bring Sam on as a cleric, um, not to yell at him for clericalism, but to kind of have a frank conversation, both about the McCarrick Report, but also how clericalism functions uh, on a more day-to-day level in Catholic life. Yep. And we're drinking one of Sam's favorite drinks while we have this conversation, uh, which is a wintry twist on the Negroni, and I'm not going to try to say it. So, Zach, what's it called? (laughs) Yes. uh, Sam loves Negronis, but in typical uh, non-cleric fashion, he did make an accommodation for Ashley because she prefers whiskey. Um, (laughs) So we're drinking Boulevardiers, which um, is basically Negroni, but you swap out the gin for uh, some some whiskey. So we're drinking uh, one of those. The ingredients are bourbon, vermouth, Campari, and some orange peel for garnish, which is the second time we've had this on the show. And it is a favorite wintry drink uh, of mine. Mm-hmm. So it's great. Cheers. So cheers. Now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So this week is the annual U- meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, and it's uh, operating a little bit differently this year, like most meetings. Um, normally they gather in person in Baltimore. Um, and because of the coronavirus, they are gathering uh, virtually this year, which means we're hearing a lot of, uh, uh, Your Excellency, you're muted. <laughs> yeah. And I got to say, it was a surprisingly uneventful meeting. I think I was expecting because it was coming on the heels of the McCarrick report and this very contentious election and the election of our second Catholic president that, you know, that there'd be some spirited conversations about those topics, which is not exactly what we saw. Uh, Bishops did give kind of statements on the McCarrick report, but we didn't really see any practical recommendations about how they might follow up on that. Which I think a lot of people found frustrating. We should acknowledge and say. Yes. Agreed. And there was no talk of the election until the very last minute. That's right. Uh, So on day two of the meeting and just minutes before the meeting ended, and we should say there was this is there wasn't like a press conference afterwards, which sometimes happens. So there was really no discussion about this. Uh, the USCCB president, Archbishop Jose Gomez, uh, announced that um, several other bishops had approached him to, quote, express a particular concern in the wake of the election. Right. 
And their concern was not that the sitting president has refused to concede that he has lost, um, but that a Catholic president, Joe Biden, who supports policies, quote, that are against the fundamental values we hold dear as Catholics, end quote, could cause confusion among the faithful. Specifically, they mentioned Biden's support for abortion, the contraception mandate, and an LGBT rights bill that they think could curtail religious liberty. Right. And so I think first it's important to say, like, what 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 is the confusion they're worried about? Because I don't think anyone's confused about what the church teaches on these issues. And so what is it about having a Catholic president who is out of step with the church. Um, why, why is that a source of confusion, do you think? Well, I think I agree with you, generally. I think they would say that having, you know, one of the most prominent Catholics in the country have this one view that is out of step with what the church teaches might cause confusion for, you know, the people watching at home. Um, I mean, but this guy was our vice president. That's right. <laughs> it's, I, it, it, no one's going to be surprised to learn this. Uh, we have plenty of other um, uh, Catholic politicians. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, would be a Catholic of this mold. Um, so I guess, yeah, is it is the confusion, you know, maybe Catholics wondering why the church isn't able to convince Joe Biden to to follow church teaching? Um, I, I, I don't think that's what's what they're getting at. I think they are worried mm. that other Catholics will think it is quote okay to mm. also hold this. So it this gives them permission. permission. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I don't think I've really ever met anyone who was confused about what the church teaches about abortion. So yeah. And I don't think I've met anyone who decided to change their view on abortion because um because a, you know, prominent politician told them to. No, definitely not. So I I think we get hung up on this a little bit, like that, that lay people are not, I don't know, as critical thinking as they, they actually are, and that they're going to be confused super easily. We should say that the bishops did note there are plenty of areas for common ground, um, specifically, you know, including work around climate change and immigration reform. Right. Um, so, yeah, but I guess what I see this as is kind of, this is how they are deciding to you know, it's their first step in framing what the relationship between the bishops conference and the Biden administration is going to be. And if there if you do hope to see some work on those issues where there's common ground, it seems like this kind of maybe uh, will make that harder. If, you know, the first thing the bishops are saying collectively about Biden is that, you know, he's kind of problematic. Yeah. I, you know, it's I'm not sure what the strategy is here. Um, Archbishop Gomez said they're creating this working group to figure out how to work with Biden. And, that, and, he, and Archbishop Gomez says that it's comparable to the one they uh, created for migrants and refugees that was set up following the election of Donald Trump in 2016. But I, I'm not totally sure that that holds necessarily, right? Like this was announced to sort of specifically navigate how to work with a Catholic president who doesn't hold certain Catholic views. Um, oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, yeah. they both are working groups that are centered on policies where there's a clear divergence between the administration and Catholic teaching. So I get I get what they're saying there. So for Trump, their biggest concern was the ways that he departed from Catholic teaching on 
how to treat migrants. And for Biden, it's the ways he departs on life issues and issues of religious liberties. So I see that parallel. Um, but I, yeah, I guess that's not how it's how they framed it. It really was like framed as something broader about the fact that he's Catholic and and holds these views. Yeah. And, you know, I think one if I'm, you know, advising the bishops on how to and for the record, I'm not. <laughs> but if they were to come to me and ask me how should they work with the new Biden administration, the area that I would actually point to is climate change, right? And, and probably immigration, which one is one where they said there are areas of common ground. But I think there is a temptation for this administration to not actually to kind of just keep the status quo with both of those issues, right? With both climate change and immigration reform and just sort of like wait that out and not actually make a ton of progress. And I think there is a clear both political and moral mandate, right, that they could have a conversation with this administration to really push further on these things. Yeah, I think that's right. And for the issues that they aren't going to see eye to eye with the administration, I want to make clear that I'm not saying that like the bishops should, you know, tone down their opposition to abortion or, or other issues like that. Um, and I do think there's, I think it's incumbent on Joe Biden as the first Catholic president to, I don't know, take, take the bishops in good faith when they, when they make those positions clear. Um, as a Catholic, he should know that our, our support for um, unborn life does not come from a place of hating women, but from, you know, a concern about th- a, the dignity of that life. So I, I hope that, you know, Biden's understanding of that will make, you know, hard discussions a little bit more possible. Um, if if the administration does start from that, like, point of presuming the best intentions of the other side. But sometimes it's really tough to have hard conversations if, this is the first the first sentence in the yeah, conversation. Right. And I think that's something that Pope Francis has pointed to um, in his papacy is that, you know, we don't have to waver on our commitments to these issues. But if we are constantly mm-hmm. referencing the same ones over and over again, it's really drowning out our ability to witness to what I think a lot of Catholics are, are worried about is a whole life spectrum. All right. Well, bishops, if you're listening, <laughs> maybe try that. <laughs> And now stick around for our conversation with Father Sam Sawyer. Joining us now from Manhattan is Father Sam Sawyer. Sam is a Jesuit priest and senior editor at America Media. Uh, He was also a lead producer on the Deliver Us podcast, which was America's deep dive on the abuse crisis. Welcome to Jesuitical, Sam. It's really good to be here. Thanks. Thanks. It's your it's the premiere. It's your first time on the show. Thank you. I know. Well, after after watching Jesuitical, you know, grow and evolve from its very first pilot sessions and, you know, frequently losing certain people who work for me at odd hours to go record it. (laughs) It's nice to finally be here in person. Yes. Yeah, We're just doing our part to keep you humble, Sam. (laughs) Now we for your first for your first time on the show we've brought you on to yell at you about clericalism so thanks for being our awesome. uh, our, our cleric in effigy sounds good so Sam we're talking to the week after the Vatican released its long awaited report on the rise and fall of the former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick 
um, again, bringing back to the to the headlines, the sexual abuse crisis in the church. Um, and people, whenever this comes up, they point to different things as the root cause, whether that's celibacy among the clergy, homosexuality, a lack of women in leadership. Um, but you and others, including Pope Francis, have have pointed to clericalism as as you know, the central problem in this crisis. Why, why do you say that? Well, so I think the first thing I want to be clear about is that I think clericalism is most clearly the central problem in the cover-up segment of the abuse crisis, right? There, there are lots of things we could talk about as far as what causes abuse or what allows abuse to persist. But when we look at the problem in the church of finding out about abusers and then not doing anything about it and covering up reports of abuse— and not acting on them properly from from a perspective of the people who are in charge, that's where I think clericalism is a really key um, part of the explanation of what went so deeply wrong in the church. And maybe before we go further, if you could just maybe give us a like working definition of clericalism. Sure. So uh, for a working definition of clericalism, I'd say it's just the attitude that um, that people who are ordained, so uh, mostly priests and bishops, but to a degree deacons as well, are by virtue of being ordained somehow um, better, have greater automatic authority, are not to be questioned, must be deferred to. Um, so it's a, it's a way that authority and ordination get attached together in the church uh, in a way that excludes criticism or involvement from lay people. Right. And you you read the entire McCarrick report. Um, where where did you see evidence of clericalism um, operating most strongly? Well, I mean, across the entire report, I, I think it's. Um, Would you say the report itself like, was a little bit? Well, um, so so I think the report <laughs> itself is starting to emerge from the shadow of clericalism a little bit, right? So the report was um, the the primary investigator in the report was an American attorney who the Vatican commissioned to go do this and do a bunch of interviews and pour through all the documents and write it up. So in that sense, you know, it is not purely clerical as an exercise. It's not just a report that's written by bishops in the Vatican, although it's still, of course, approved. It comes out of bishops in the Vatican commissioning the report. Um, but the primary place I see clericalism, or the clearest pattern you see if you go through the report or just even you know read the executive summary of the report yourself, is that over and over again, the concern that is driving all the events in the report isn't a concern about whether or not McCarrick actually was hurting people, mm. right? Um, it's always a concern about whether or not there's going to be public scandal. And what does the church mean by scandal, like there in particular? Uh, so, I mean, ideally, what the church ought to mean by scandal, um, and what the church means at scandal by scandal when the church is at its best, is a concern for something that will um, diminish or block people's faith, right? So, scandal comes from the Greek for a stumbling block. So, it literally, something that gets in the way of people uh, having faith and believing in God. But uh, practically, what it means in the report, what it meant for McCarrick, uh, is scandal in the sense of something that'll make us, us, the bishops, the clerics, the priests, the people in charge of the church, something that'll make us look bad. And that's just sort of automatically equated to if it makes us look bad, it will also be bad for people's faith. But of course, what we've learned over the now, you know, we're getting close to 20 years of the abuse crisis in the United States being 
well-known in public discussion. And of course, what we've seen is that's what is causing people to lose faith, right? That the that the church hasn't dealt with this honestly and continues to have to be sort of dragged kicking and screaming into dealing with it all honestly. That's a, a much greater stumbling block to faith than public discussion of what's going on. And where was maybe the most like egregious example of this in the McCarrick report? So when I wrote about this uh, for America last week, I it's it and it's not that it's the most egregious example. It just happened to be a very compact example of it. So I picked an example um, that's found on three pages of the report, a letter that uh, Cardinal Hickey, who was then Archbishop of Washington, D.C., um, so a position that McCarrick would later succeed to, but a letter that Cardinal Hickey writes in response to a request from the nuncio, which is to say the Pope's ambassador in the U.S., when rumors were swirling around McCarrick. So the background here is that uh, it's 1994, might need to check that date, but um, they're preparing for John Paul II to come and visit the United States, one of his visits, and one of the proposed stops is in Newark, where uh, McCarrick is at that point archbishop. And in the preparation and the run-up for this visit, one of the concerns that's expressed and that comes to the nuncio is that there are these rumors around McCarrick, and if the Pope goes to visit his archdiocese, possibly these rumors will hit the press and be discussed publicly and so we should check and figure out whether or not this is really a problem. And so the nuncio consults around, and one of the people he consults with is Cardinal Hickey in D.C., and Hickey writes this letter where he defends McCarrick, but the the logic of his defense, I think, is a near-perfect example of clericalism. Hickey uh, basically says that in light of his many years of devoted service and his well-deserved reputation as a churchman beyond reproach, I'm quoting there, that McCarrick should be presumed completely innocent. And when I was reading the whole report, that leapt out to me because here we have a, a cardinal of the church saying that the presumption of innocence here is not just a presumption that should be accorded to anyone as a matter of justice and due process, but rather that McCarrick deserves some sort of specific presumption of innocence because he is a talented, accomplished, um, and eminent churchman, right? Which I think is just the definition of clericalism. And you see in this letter how Hickey, by focusing on McCarrick as a fellow churchman, as another eminent bishop, talks himself out of even the possibility of imagining that there could really be anything wrong here that would require further follow-up or any action on his part or on the part of anyone else. Because he served the church for so long, and he must be one of the quote-unquote good guys. Well, because he served the church for so long, and the, the other thing that's in um, in Hickey's letter is um, sort of talking himself into to disbelieving the accuser, right? So there's the accuser is painted as sort of ideologically unreliable, and the accuser in this case is actually a, a priest who um, is alleging that McCarrick mistreated him when he was a seminarian. The channel through which this allegation got passed to the nuncio uh, is the superior of a women's religious community, and she's sort of dismissed as, well, she just wants to make herself sound important. And so it's anyone who's not uh, who's not a bishop, right? So in this case, they're even dismissing other clerics, uh, this other priest, and religious, this, this uh, superior of the women's religious community, but anyone who's not at their level of clerical status is unreliable, doesn't really have to be taken quite that seriously. Is there anything in the report 
or in the way that it's been received among U.S. bishops that suggests there's an awareness of the way that clericalism is operating here? So, I, I mean, I think the report itself is a sign of some of that awareness, right? I, the most surprising thing in the report to me, uh, surprising in a positive sense, is that the report is so thorough and that it lays out um, with such clarity some of the internal deliberations, particularly the internal deliberations at the Vatican around how bishops get appointed. That's not something you really ever hear uh, people talking about publicly. And so the fact that the report was willing to put some of that on the table, I think, is both kind of a a crack in the wall of clericalism a little bit, but also a sign that, um, as Pope Francis has said many times, that this is being recognized as a problem, that these sort of completely insulated and isolated circles of discussion and power and authority um, are part of what's driven the abuse crisis. I want to like hone in on something here because I think you've got corporations, you know, all throughout the world that can be accused of treating serious moral problems just like their PR crises. What specifically is is different in in this case? Is it just that it's involving clerics or is there something like more deeply spiritually sinful at work here? Uh so I'm going to give the classic Catholic both and answer here. Um, both those things are the case. So I think part of part of clericalism, clericalism is just in one sense the Catholic name for the sort of sociological phenomenon of in-group protection, right? As you said, you see this all over in any institution. It'll happen in corporations. People will protect uh, others like themselves. People will, particularly people in power, will tend to uh, disbelieve or find reasons to push off accusations from people outside their circle of power. And that happens everywhere. That's not special or specific to the church. Um, I think the things about it that are specific to the church are um, the church's structures of authority, at least the ones that are solidly linked to ordination, um, have a very long on-ramp, and there's and you can only get in at the very first step. Right, which is to say, the only way to be a bishop is to first have been a priest. The only way to be a priest is to first have been a seminarian. And so you've got a pool of people who enter into those circles of power that have been on that road for decades. And there's no one else who gets into that funnel. There's a smaller, more, um, more insular group of people in that circle by the time you get to the highest levels of power. But the other thing that I think is different about clericalism in the church, what makes it spiritually damaging is that what, you know, I'm a priest, what we priests are supposed to do is to to minister to people on behalf of God, right? And and become for them in some way um, a representation of of Jesus and how Jesus ministers to and loves the church. And so when that ministry is distorted through clericalism, when it's used um, for self-protection and for self-interest instead of for the good of the people whom it's supposed to serve, then that is spiritually damaging in a profound way. That's a good pivot to talk about your own your own vocation and ministry because you you joined the Jesuits in two thousand two. Um, two thousand four. Oh, sorry, two thousand four. Um, in Boston, is that right? I did. And and this was, you know, well, two, from Boston, from the Boston, novitiates yeah. in Syracuse. Yeah. So this was, you know, soon after the the Boston abuse crisis became public. Um, how did how did entering the priesthood, you know, obviously it was a long journey from there, but how how did that 
how did that shape your own ministry? You know, I remember, and I've I've written about this uh, for America when I was discerning uh, specifically about applying to the Jesuits and entering. I was going to daily mass at the the Jesuit church on the corner of BC's campus, which at the time, um, right across the street from the church and the campus, was the chancery of the Archdiocese of Boston, and so. At any given point, you know, I had a rough barometer of how bad the news in the scandal was that day by counting the number of satellite trucks parked outside the chancery. So you are you are actively thinking about becoming a priest when this is just like blowing up. Oh yeah, and you know, fellow parishioners um, at at my church in Boston are um, are disappointed and scared and mad as hell at the church. And and all of that's going on at the same time. My family certainly was, um, people in my family were skeptical about it. I would say the my experience, uh, the way that hit my discernment, it didn't scare me so much, but it did, it made me more sober about what I was actually looking to do, right? Because it made it very clear that I was asking to step into uh, a kind of life where as much as there would be people for whom I would be a, a great gift and who would receive me warmly, there were also very definitely going to be people who looked at me with suspicion. Um, and I would say that's that's been true. You know, I've been received overall much more warmly by by people as a Catholic priest than people have shown suspicion of me. But I've certainly have experienced over the last now you know sixteen years of religious life and six years of priesthood people who come to a Catholic priest with a certain amount of automatic suspicion uh, because of what they've learned through these years of the abuse scandal. Are there moments where you've experienced like the temptation to clericalism? Because I have to imagine like lay people like myself have to play a role in this because I know I've been guilty of just sort of, it's easier to default put you guys on a pedestal sometimes. So I, I, I want to come back to the question of have I experienced the temptation because well in in one sense because I'm probably you know not the most reliable gauge of that and you should you should ask the people who who work with me you know some of whom <laughs> might be on this interview um, whether or not whether or not I succumb to that temptation um, but uh, one place I, I remember seeing this um, through the you know at least the first year of my priesthood every time I went to a new parish. And was kind of getting, you know, the the orientation to it, right? So you show up in the sacristy twenty minutes before mass, and somebody tells you, like, "Here's your microphone. Here's, you know, this is what order we're going to do things in, and this is, you know, where you line up for the procession, and all those logistical details you need to run mass." Very often, in fact, almost across the board, someone would ask me, "Oh, Father." How do you want the altar set up, or how do you want to do, you know, the distribution of communion at this particular time, uh, or how do you want to do this? How do you want to do that? And my my answer would always be, "What do you do here?" <laughs> you know that that's what I want to do. I want to do whatever whatever the normal thing is here. And uh, you know, at one level, people were just trying to be hospitable, and and I think you know, certainly at least in the early days, there was also the fear that like you know, this guy might not know what he's doing, so we should at least find out what he thinks he's doing. <laughs> but underneath that, as well, is this sense of like, well, we can't tell you what to do. You're the priest. I'm like, yeah, but I've never been here to your parish before, so you need to tell me what to do because I have no idea what you ordinarily do here. Um, and that is just you know, sort of like a small capsule example 
of, I think, the ways that there's this built-in expectation that like because I'm a priest, I already know how all this works, or or even if I don't know, I already have my own agenda for how all this works. Well, and as someone who works who has worked with you and for you for majority of your priesthood, I will say that I want to give you a little bit of permission to <laughs> Yeah, uh, not congratulate yourself, but like I certainly could not work for a priest who is clerical, right? I am. <laughs> I think I've said before I am not necessarily a yes man all the time, and you, uh, it's something I have noticed about you. And you know, you really do resist this temptation to just re- retreat into your authority, either as my boss or as a Jesuit priest. Um, so I'm just like, what is the secret sauce? Maybe if there are priests or other lay people listening out there. First of all. Thank you for that. Um, I think one of the things that does it for me that I find most helpful in that is, um, you know, basic from Ignatian spirituality, the daily examine. So just checking in on a daily basis about what I've been experiencing, where God has been in it, um, because it gives me an opportunity to to find those moments where where I realize, oh yeah, I really didn't know what was going on there, <laughs> right? Um, or I made a boneheaded call and and then I get a chance to look at, well, why did I make that boneheaded call? Right? Did I do that because I didn't get enough input? Did I do that because I was feeling, you know, vulnerable or uncertain and I just grabbed at something that looks secure? Definitely a disciplined practice of prayer, um, and specifically the daily examine. But above and beyond that is just, I think, the the willingness to be wrong about things, right? To not feel like like it's my job to know in advance how things are supposed to go. I'm glad that's how you answer the question because I think there's among some Catholics a more superficial fix, or they you know they think the answer is more superficial. It's like oh well you know priests should stop wearing their clerics and wear normal clothes and we shouldn't have to call them father. Um, but in my own experience, I've met you know priests and Catholics who are not clericalists at all, and I've met Jesuits in flannels. <laughs> who, you know, insist that I call them by their first name, but do fall into it. Um, So I'm just, I'm glad that your response was, you know, prayer and reflection, not just like being, being the cool casual uh, priest. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, I mean, I I think clericalism is much more about whether or not you're, you're able to be corrected in a sense than it is about any external trappings of authority or priestly office. Yeah. Is it do you think it's wrong for for lay Catholics to hold priests up to a higher or different standard? Uh no, I, I certainly don't think it's wrong for lay Catholics to hold priests to a higher standard. And there are some aspects of a different standard. Like you know, we have different obligations, right? There there are standards that apply to me in terms of my particularly my formal obedience uh to the the hierarchy of the church that that apply to a priest differently than they would apply to a lay Catholic. Um, but but I would say, you know, I hope that we hold anyone who's trying to who's trying to be holy, who's trying to serve other Christians as a minister of the gospel in some way, I hope we hold anyone who sets out on that path to a higher standard. And in that sense, there's nothing special about holding priests to a higher standard. It's just that priest means for everyone deliberately um volunteering to be a minister of the gospel. So yeah, everyone who's going to try to be a minister of the gospel needs to be held to a, a standard of service and compassion and care um, that is 
I would hope, higher than whatever our default is. Yeah, it it just seems like there there is this tension between empowering the laity, right? And saying, you know, you are the church and you're part of it. And that it was the it was the clerics that really did enable this abuse and this cover-up, and still trying to, in this aftermath, like not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like to understand what are, you know, like proper relationships between clerics and laity and what real what power looks like in the church and where it should should be. Um, what are some like practical steps you think that we either as lay members of the church or as clerics can take to sort of start to resolve some of that? I think the the first and maybe most significant thing I would say about that is that the one of the questions um, to be asked of any priest, of any bishop, but also I would suggest um, by lay people about any priest or bishop who's serving them is, does this man seek advice? Is this man correctable? Can he, can he hear a critique and receive it and change his mind about things? Um, does he talk to people? And does he talk to people not pro forma, but to actually learn what their needs are, um, what their thoughts about how he's doing in his ministry are? Um, can he really hear people as as equals and as partners and not just as, quote unquote, the people in the pews? That, I think, is maybe the, the most critical thing. And there are, there are process implications for that, certainly, um, about involving lay people in boards of review and other um, you know, formal structures in the church that deal uh, either specifically with the abuse crisis or with questions about, you know, like reviewing um, seminarians as they come up for ordination. Uh, or I, I would hope that we eventually find ways to involve um, input from lay people uh, in a deeper way when we're considering uh, who we identify as candidates to be appointed bishops. Bishops and also pastor, I feel like the experience of most Catholics, you know, they might not be totally clued in on who their bishop is, but like most of the time, just Father So and So just randomly shows up uh, when it's time to reshuffle assignments, and there's not a ton of at least visible input from the community, even though there might be behind the scenes. It still feels like it's a uh, maybe the the old boys club shuffling the the ranks, right? And there, I'd say, and I'm I have honestly no idea how to solve this, but more often than not, at, at least. Uh, in present day, I think the challenge there is not not just an unwillingness or a, a disinterest in hearing input from uh, lay people in the parish, but the fact that uh, most bishops, when they're when it comes time to assign a new pastor, like it's not actually like they have a whole lot of options necessarily, right? Just given the number of priests and people who are available, sometimes, and I think unfortunately most of the time, um, it's closer to plugging a hole than than picking the right person. Yeah. So for those of us who are working within the church, it can be kind of disheartening to talk about this, like how the church is broken. But I think I don't know, maybe we can find some hope in the fact that we're, we're talking about this and we're seeing people trying to be proactive about empowering lay people and holding clerics accountable. So I'm wondering, you know, what, what in this moment do you see that is hopeful um, and how do you personally stay spiritually grounded and not falling into despair when we when we have these conversations? Uh, honestly, one of the things I think is really is deeply hopeful here is the fact that there are lay people um, who are 
more um, more publicly um, dissatisfied with the status quo and are willing to say so um, and are not simply um, you know accepting the kind of automatic reassurance that that everything's okay or that you know well we've looked at this and we've you know tweaked some procedures around the edges and now it's all fine I find the fact that people are unwilling to accept that, or at least the people who are most deeply invested in their faith are unwilling to accept that. I actually find that deeply hopeful um, because I think it is it is on the path to something um, to something changing in the church. And uh, honestly, I don't know what that change will look like yet. Right? I I suspect that um, you know over the course of Certainly over the course of my priestly life, but probably even over the course of the next 10 or 20 years, you know, closer in than that, um, the shape of parish life in the United States is going to transform drastically, um, in part because of the, the number of priests available, but in part also because the, um, you know, the demographics of parishes are going to change. And I think the, the people who are deeply invested in parish life are going to kind of vote with their feet about which parishes actually meet them where they are and and offer them something that that feeds them spiritually. And yeah, I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but um but I think I I have a pretty deep trust and and certainly a great hope that that God is at work in that transformation in ways that uh we don't that we don't necessarily expect, that we can't predict and that we will learn about and learn to be grateful for mostly in hindsight that uh you said that with such hope that it's hard to be mad about it but man that is sort of maddening <laughs> <laughs> well that is the gospel i suppose i mean this is so this is something it's certainly something i see um deeply in pope francis's ministry um and no surprise here it's something i attribute to his formation in ignatian spirituality because you know ignatius says let the creator deal directly with the creature and the creature directly with its creator and Lord, which is sort of a, a slightly more eloquent and poetic way of saying God's actually in charge here. Yeah. It's your, it's your church Lord. I'm going to bed. Yeah, basically. Right. And, it, and which doesn't excuse you, excuse anyone of the responsibility to actually do every bit of, of work that's in your power and that is actually yours to do. But it is to say that ultimately the success or failure of the church is not a matter of of how well we we either understand the problem or plan for the solution. The success or failure of the church is a matter of God being faithful to the church, and God is. Amen. I think it's a good place to to wrap. Sam, thank you for uh, coming on to talk about this very fraught subject. Um, although I feel like you run an expertise in fraught subjects, so. Um, <laughs> Much appreciated. We do have one final question for you, um, and I think you know it's coming. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? So uh, I did know this was coming and spent some time thinking about it. And the person I've decided on is Denise Levertov, who's uh, an American poet from the 20th century, a convert to Christianity and then later on a convert to Catholicism once she was already a Christian who died in 1997. And one of the reasons I've loved uh, Levertov's poetry for a long time, going back at least to my own college days. And one of the reasons uh, I find her poetry so powerful is because it it's willing to grapple with the thorny questions 
and not try to get an answer for them, right? But simply to say, here's the question, it's it's kind of a mess, and we're in the middle of it. But there is a beauty in that that's that's pulled out of her poetry. Uh, she was also, um, in addition to being a great poet, a peace activist during the Vietnam War, you know, kind of a, a, a gadfly figure uh, in some ways. But um, if, and I have no idea how much of this will make it into the recording, but I actually grabbed a poem of hers that I thought kind of captures it short and might capture some of the places we are these days. I would love to hear that. So uh, the poem's called On the Mystery of the Incarnation. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves that awe cracks the mind shell and enters the heart, not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. Mm. Amen. Well, St. Denise, pray for us. Sam, thank you so much. Um, we're going to plug uh, the piece that you just wrote for us um, where people can find that at americamagazine.org, but people can also find your thoughts on twitter.com. What is your handle? S. Sawyer SJ. Yes. The most civil, civil voice you're going to find on Twitter. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> <laughs> Sanity is my brand. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to give a shout out to the new members of our Patreon community. Uh, we've got Amy Whitman, Ruth O'Connor, and Katie and Chris Sousen. Yeah, thanks so much for signing up to support the show. We hope you're enjoying the benefits that come with supporting our Patreon page, including our reading group, which is still happening. If you are still on the fence about joining, there is still time to log on Um pledge to support the show. You can get access to all three of the conversations that have already happened. Um, and you can join our fourth and final one, which is happening the Thursday after Thanksgiving live. And so you can hit all that at patreon.com slash America media. And we also want to put in a plug for two podcasts from the American media network that are coming this advent. So for The Word, which is our regular scriptural uh, reflection podcast here at America, we ramp it up during the Advent season, and there will be reflections from uh, editors at American Media every day throughout Advent. Yeah, and we'll be we'll be narrating them, so you might hear our voices. Um, and we also want to point you to a new special edition of our Imagine podcast. So Tucker Redding, SJ, who you might remember um, he was on this podcast to talk about Ignatian imaginative prayer, produced uh, one season one of Imagine, um, and he's coming back with a six-part Advent season that's going to guide you through uh, the journey with Mary and Joseph and imagining scenes that lead up to the Christmas story and the birth of Christ. Yes, so 
Wherever you find your favorite podcast, go subscribe to The Word and Imagine. And just one final housekeeping note. We are taking Thanksgiving off. And so um, we will be counting in our number of gratitudes this year. Might seem like there aren't a lot of things to be grateful for. But I know, and I and we, and we really do mean this, we are grateful for for you and this community that um, have built up this, this podcast for what it is. So um, keep us in your prayers this Thanksgiving and you will be in ours. Yeah, we'll see you in Advent. That's right. Yeah, I know. It's it's next Sunday. Oh, boy. All right. And now it's time for Constellations and Desolations, the part of the show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I got a desolation. Um, and it, I guess it starts with like, I don't know, holidays are coming. And I, I, I personally like find these it to be like a pretty stressful time. Um, and that is more so the case this year. I feel like this started sneaking up at the same time where I was hitting like a, I don't know, one of these like coronavirus, like bad days where just everything seems dark and terrible and it's never going to end. And, um, I kind of reached a breaking point and, uh, I don't know, was not, not in a good place. Um, and compounding that one of the normal things I would reach to to deal with like stress like this, um, working out, I'm like trying not to go to the gym anymore. Um, that's gone. Um, and normally like my faith is like a huge part of how I deal with stress, I would say. Um, but praying on my own is not one of my readily like go-to tools, right? Like normally I can just show up to mass and sit and let it like wash over me. And that is harder to do now. And when I'm in the midst of this like freak out or crisis and all these problems that need solved and all these things that need done, the thing that I'm worried about is just getting something done. And Father Eric was asking me, like, well, did you pray about it? And I was like, after a little bit of back and forth, I was like, no, I didn't pray because that is seen as like some sort of luxury that I can do once I've figured something out. And because it's not productive in that way, it's not something that I like regularly turn to. And it's, you know, instead of doing that, I'm what I'm actually doing is sort of retreating into myself, freaking out about stuff and withdrawing from like other human relationship as well. So like definition, desolation. Um, and so, I don't know, gave it a little bit of time, had a nice tea, um, and things are still terrible, but I am trying to work on, you know, learning to still be human, still be committed to my prayer life, um, and being okay with it, not going to fix everything, which is so maddening, but it is the way as the Mandalorian would say. (laughs) Yeah, I, I feel you. And that kind of connects to my, Consolation, which did is one of those consolations that did not feel like a consolation as I mean, you know, <laughs> it didn't feel nice is what I'll say. Um, so I guess it was Tuesday night. I had I kind of went into a similar spiral um, that you described, Zach. It was, you know, I you know, it was one of those nights where I was tossing and turning to like 3 a.m. just thinking about going home for Thanksgiving, um, being around family members who are, you know, vulnerable, older have uh, pre-existing conditions, that sort of thing, and just kind of kind of panicking. And that that panic, you know, kind of prompted um, an examination of conscience for me because it was like, okay, like why why are you freaking out now? Like you've 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 gone back to Virginia to see your family before. Like is this really that different? And I think 
you know, what I had to do is reflect and like the reason I was really panicking is because like I was uh, looking back on <laughs> my last couple of weeks and realizing that like I've, I, you know, I let my guard down. I, you know, I have had Corona fatigue and I'm sick of being alone in my apartment and there are interactions I've had where I look back and I'm like, you know, I wish I had been more careful in that situation. Um, and so I, you know, really saw that, you know, I haven't been putting, you know, my concern about other people, especially leading back to this, uh, to this holiday first. Um, so, so the consolation in that is that I was prompted to, you know, listen to my conscience and, and God kind of prodding me to do that. Um, and, you know, Father Sundrup described something from the exercises and it's, you know, when you're going from pleasure to pleasure, God's intervention isn't going to feel good. It's, <laughs> it's going to disrupt that. Um, and so I think I, I kind of got, got some, um, a good wake up call from God, uh, this week, mm. uh, going, going into Thanksgiving. A little God intervention. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get my COVID test and, and be, be a better, better citizen <laughs> going forward. <laughs> yeah. It's hard and takes a lot of guts to, I don't know, face up to yourself and to, and mm -hmm. to God always. Yeah. It's better. It's always easier to just kind of shirk that in my opinion, but, uh, I, mm -hmm. I admire you for staring it in the face. Yeah. All right. Get us out of here. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you in two weeks. 